Hello, and welcome to Value-Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm your host, Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tori Callan to discuss using data science to live better for longer. Tori is the data scientist at Australian health tech startup, UR, as well as working as a data scientist with fintech startup, Spriggy. He's spent the past five years setting up AI and automated risk management for leading finance companies in Australia. Tori, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. We all want to live long, happy and healthy lives. And in the age of technology, it comes as little surprise that people are turning to data to do just that. Between smartwatches, aura rings and fitness apps like Strava, we're all generating massive quantities of personal health and fitness data each day, sometimes literally in our sleep. But that data is only valuable if it can be converted into useful insights. And that's something that a lot of startups are now looking to do. One such startup is UR, spelt U-A-R-E, which, as I mentioned before, Tori, you're the data scientist for. Now, for listeners who haven't come across UR before, can you give us an overview of what it does? UR was born out of the desire to make sense of the wealth of data, maybe the deluge is a better word, of personal data that you get from your fitness and health trackers. I think for those listeners who are familiar with Strava, Garmin, or a group Apple Health, you look through the menu of those apps and you will get a lot of numbers thrown at you. So for most people, I think it's probably too much in some ways. You have a lot of you have a lot of numbers and a lot of data thrown at you. And it's difficult to contextualize all of that to make sense of where that should be. And I think what's really challenging is what people need to actually do about it. So what we're attempting at UI is to develop a, a broad scope, holistic view of an individual that can actually contextualize all of your information and give you recommendations and feedback as to what you need to do to improve overall health, well-being and longevity. What sort of recommendations does it produce? The key thesis of the business is that a lot of the drivers of longevity and overall health is how long you're spending on exercise and activity. And then there's this key thing that we think is important that's, as far as we can tell, fairly unique in that your functional performance is actually what drives quite a lot of overall health. And then as you get into your old age, how well you live in your old age. I suppose it's not a unique idea in the health space because there are other there are plenty of practitioners who have spoken about the need to stay fairly fit and healthy. But what we're trying to do is bring some recommendations around how well you're performing and also as well as how much you're doing. And then also trying to contextualize that with at some point rest, sleep, making sure that that base is covered. Some of the insights we're working on at the moment, and keep in mind this is very much a work in progress, has been around trying to give a baseline and a comparison of your performance in any particular activity compared to what we think is achievable for someone of your age and your gender. For example, if you went for a five-kilometre run and for myself at age 30 and as a male, we know that the fastest that someone can run that is roughly 12, I think 12 and a half minutes. And so we know that if I go and do that in 23 minutes, I might be at let's say 50% of my overall achievement level that I could actually pursue if I wanted to. And so what we could do is we could give that a score out of 50, out of 100, sorry. Or what we might want to do is we say, well, actually, the 12 and a half minutes, I think it was Joshua Cheptegei who set that world record, that's achievable by someone who's specialised in running and running for that particular distance. But what we actually know is that for someone who wants to be really fit and healthy into their old age, they want to be really fit and healthy across a number of different domains in terms of time and in terms of modal domains. So 
not just being a really good runner, but being able to swim well, being able to ride a bike well, being able to lift well in the gym. And so I don't have exact numbers here. I'm approximating, but maybe that 17 minutes for that performance is what we think is actually really necessary for you to try and achieve. So what we can then say is, hey, you've, you've done this five kilometer run. We've looked at the heart rate that you did at that. And so we saw that actually you were sitting at what we might call a level or a zone three or a zone four. So we know that if you went as hard as you could for that particular distance, that you might actually be able to do it in 21 minutes or 20 minutes. And so we think that you're actually achieving three quarters of what your overall performance level is. So that's, I mean, that's one domain of insights. But what we also do at the same time is we say, well, because you've done this activity, you might not be at 100% of your achievement level, but that's fine because you're accumulating this volume of training over time. And we know that's really useful in the way you build an aerobic base and the way you improve your cardiorespiratory system. We also know that's really valuable just in terms of moving the body. There's all this data around how regular exercise and activity improves a lot of health outcomes and longevity when you look at the totality of someone's lifespan. And so we can also say, well, you've actually done a really good job in terms of achieving the activity minutes for this week. And you've had a really nice mixture of moderate and low intensity and then a high intensity amount of work, both which are quite important. And then we can summarize that and say, well, actually you're achieving really well because you're you're tracking upwards in terms of your performance. So that's getting better and you're doing the work to make your performance get better. And even if you are well away from the performance level because of lifestyle factors, because you've been sedentary for most of your life, you're doing the right thing. And so we can give you some really valuable feedback on yeah, the accumulation of minutes that is in a really positive aspect. So if you'd had someone who had spent most of their life sitting on the couch watching television, who suddenly decided that they were going to try and run that five kilometres, Now, obviously, it would not be possible to go from the couch to 5Ks in a single day. So it would provide positive feedback to the fact that just doing anything is better than doing nothing. One of the really exciting things as a data scientist is actually coming into this product really, really early on and thinking about a lot of the personalization and different personas from the start. I think I find that quite unique compared to other products I've worked on where there's a really stable feature set for one, a single cohort or a single view of someone. And then if you want to talk about personalization or recommendation systems or kind of an intelligent way of serving up a product, you you have to kind of tack that on top of what's already there. So a lot of what we've discussed and thought about and are starting to implement is having almost personalized streams depending on the characteristics of someone who comes to you and and what lifestyle stage they're at so one example of a personalization strategy we can employ and what we're working on at the moment is you have an individual who's potentially active in their teens and 20s and maybe has reached their 40s and 50s and hasn't been as active for the last 20 or so years yeah work life gets in the way that sort of thing happens to most of us. And so what we can do is we can design key product flows and key bits of information where we might not get into the whole performance aspect because that's just not relevant for those people. But what we can do is we say, well, if you started doing half an hour of activity a week, this is going to have this percentage impact on your longevity. We know for someone, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, so hopefully people will forgive me for approximating but we might know the longevity of someone who's in their mid-40s based on where they live let's say their life expectancy is 80 and we might be able to see that if we if someone in that situation increased their activity levels to half an hour a week by setting some goals to say well actually we want you to try and hit 150 minutes of activity in the week and then beyond that, start to get into ideas around how efficient you're moving and how well you're moving. One one key bit that we've been able to do so far is actually look at like incidental activity. So Apple Health, I think, does a pretty reasonable job if you go into 
if you go into what they serve up, they'll give you information about how many steps that you've done and then how many flights of stairs you're doing and give you a comparison and how well you might be moving. But a lot of other fitness trackers tend to ignore what you do in between intentional bits of activity. So with Strava, you pretty much have to start an activity in order to record it. And what tends to happen with Strava is it becomes quite performative because Strava, despite being really, it's a popular product, but I think it motivates people to display activities in a really performative way. So what gets shown is how far you went in a particular activity, how far you ran, how far you swam, how far you rode. And then how quickly you did it. There's almost a disincentive for people to do like easy activities. I think like a really common bit of feedback you'll hear, heard this from cycling groups quite a lot, is that once people get onto Strava, they'll want to do every ride as hard and fast as they possibly can because that looks better when it gets onto the app. And what we actually know is that a lot of training mileage is really useful at a really low level. You almost want to sit at a comfortable pace where you could have a conversation like we're having now while you're doing an activity because that is what actually accumulates. That That's what allows your body to accumulate some good aerobic cardiorespiratory fitness over many years. It's why you see a lot of endurance athletes, so Ironman triathletes and Tour de France cyclists peak in their early 30s is because, because they've had almost 10, maybe 15 years of doing a lot of training volume, it tends to be the case that once you've done all of that work, you actually can get really, really fit in a short amount of time. So the focus on trying to move really hard and move really quickly in a short amount of time is really useful, but can actually be detrimental if that's all you're doing. And I think this is where tech kind of gets into the loop and actually starts to impact people's behavior but not in an, an attend, in intentional manner and i think that's one area in which we know that we can have a pretty big impact so what we've started to work on is just saying to people like the activity minutes is what matters like accumulation of time movement spending time outside trying to do it with other people because we know that social contact and being in a group of like-minded people is really valuable and really impactful on your health and well-being and that's the sort of feedback that we want to give in a more intentional way. So going back to our early example, like for someone who's been sedentary, we might not show a performance level and we might not show a lot of information around pace or heart rate data or trying to give a really high level analysis of someone's activity. All we might do is we might say you went for a run, you ran this far, you ran for this amount of time and you added this amount of time onto the total activity you need for the week. So you're now, let's say, another half hour closer to your goal. And because you have that much closer to hitting your goal for this week and you've done the last, let's say, six weeks of hitting your activity minutes goal, we know that it's going to have a small but pretty valuable impact on your life expectancy. And we can give you some feedback to say if you keep going, then the impact on your longevity and life expectancy is going to keep going up and up. One thing I've found, because I've used Strava in the past, I find that gets very intimidating after a while for all of those reasons that you just mentioned, Mm. that, you know, it feels like if you're not really going to be pushing it, then you're just going to embarrass yourself. But I can see that what you're describing would be really motivating because the prize is however many minutes or days that you're going to get extra at the end of your life. Yeah, exactly. And I think we need to be focused on who the person is And one thing I always keep in the back of my mind is we're not treating people as a source of data or we're not treating people as the activities they do or the devices they have. We're trying to see people as people and trying to give them feedback based on where they are in their life and what they're trying to achieve. And so for most people, all we want to do is say, you've added another half hour to activity and we just want you to keep going and want you to keep doing that. As a data scientist, How do you manage to wrap your head around the idea that the data in front of you is not just data points? Those data points actually connect to real human beings. Because I know that's something that a lot of data scientists struggle with. The key is having a life outside of data science for mine. I have a pretty, I call it robust training 
volume through the week. I have for most of my life. And so I've just sort of continued doing that as I've started to work. And so it's easy for me to think about, especially in this context, because it's so close to what I tend to look at day to day for fun and out of interest anyway. It's really easy for me to think about that as a person first and then a data scientist second. And so I think maybe the key for the people who are potentially newer to the field or potentially fairly deep down a specialty is because it can become quite engrossing. And I think quite a lot of data scientists have somewhere between obsessive and really interested personalities. It becomes really easy to know a lot about a narrow kind of set of tools and techniques and different ways of looking at things. And it's harder to miss the full context. I, I don't want to be too prescriptive here and say well, this is the best way of doing things. And I think I think certain approaches are really valuable in their time and place. If I were trying to reverse engineer this approach for other people, I would suggest try and have that view outside of data science first. I mean, my background was in statistics, and this is something that because it's a bit more of a mature field, it was perhaps taught a lot better. And the the two questions that I've always really liked repurposing, I think it was Don Rubin who came up with them, a statistician from 30-odd years ago. But he, he would always ask people, well, if you had no data at all, what would you do? Like you, before you come to me with an, an analysis or an experiment you want to run or a model you want to build, what would you do if you had absolutely no idea? what was happening and then the second question he'd ask is well what if you had all the data available so not just a small experiment or a simple model but every bit of data you could possibly want what would you do then and what is trying to what we're trying to feel for with those two answers is like what's the what's the baseline what's the default set of things that we're going to do if we don't know much if we have a lot of uncertainty and and we have we never have no data but if we don't have a lot of rich and full information about a particular situation. And then with the second question, you're trying to understand, well, what would happen if you if you had more information, if you had all of that data that you wanted, what's actually going to change? So to bring it back to our example, like if I knew almost nothing about someone, I'd be reasonably confident in saying that they need to do at least a little bit of physical activity every day. And that if they spend time trying to get better at the physical activity they're doing, that they're going to feel better, feel happier, live better and live for longer. And so if that's my baseline, then as we gather more information from people's devices, all we're trying to do is make that advice a little bit more, I suppose, high fidelity. We're trying to give a little bit more precision to the information we're trying to give back to people. What you're saying before, what happens if you have no data? That's actually a good segue into another question I was going to ask you. Since you're working at a startup, there must have been a point where you had absolutely no, no data at all. How did you cope with that situation where you were trying to build a product from absolutely nothing? Absolutely nothing's relative, right? It's nice to have the big database with millions or billions of rows of data, but actually, when it comes to physical activity and humans' performance, there's quite a bit of information out there in the world. Uh, the starting point for, for us was actually just looking at a set of world records. So starting with open division for running across a bunch of different time domains. I think we looked at the five kilometer, 10 kilometer, the half marathon and the marathon. You compare that between women and men to get a sense of the difference between the two um, the two divisions and then we started to compare that across masters divisions as well so we might know the marathon world record time for open men but what does that look like for over 50s and over 60s and over 70s what that did for us because that information is freely available it actually gives us a pretty good understanding of what what will happen for people as they get older and what's the difference for men and women when it comes to physical performance and it then gives us an understanding for everyone that comes through, like what's the, what is the best possible level of performance look like? 
I think I mentioned this right at the top, but we're not necessarily saying that everyone needs to be achieving world record times because I don't even think that is probably outside the scope of health and longevity once you get beyond a certain point of functional performance. And you'd also have with the people who are really pushing it, they're also going to do some damage to their body. So it's possibly not something you want to encourage. Potentially. I think there are advantages to train, trying to train at a fairly high level. Maybe this is just my personality speaking because I um, tend to be more of a generalist in most things. I say, I suggest that a lot of data scientists would be generalists in a lot of aspects as well, but I'd find it more interesting to try and be good at a number of different things than it is to be really good at one thing. When it comes to physical activity, like trying to be a really, really good runner is to me not as interesting as trying to be a, a moderately decent runner and to be fairly competent when I go to the gym and to be I'm fairly modest swimmer but trying to sort of at least be better than what I was a year or two ago yeah maybe on the totality and this is something we're still weighing up is maybe the best version for everyone is to be really good or fairly good decently good at quite a few different things and that and one interesting way to challenge yourself is just to find different activities to go be good at So what you're talking about with your starting point being looking at a lot of those world records, where did you start with regard to longevity? Were you looking at, say, actuarial tables to look at the life expectancies and things like that? Yeah, well, the starting point for us was to actually look at the World Health Organization's recommendations on physical activity. Off the top of my head, it's about 150 to 300 minutes a week of physical activity is going to maximize the impact on longevity and beyond that point what you want to do is start to optimize the the mix of moderate and intense activity time so intense i mean it, it is a little bit relative but like we've used anything over 75 percent of your heart rate as an intense activity and something below that as what we call moderate I suppose one interesting thing when you're doing this for the first time is you make all these approximations and first cuts that seem reasonable because I can think as I was talking through that of quite a few things that we could improve there. But there's a lot of peer-reviewed literature and sort of practitioners in the health and wellness space who speak about the value of staying physically active and give kind of guidelines of what they think is reasonable. And if you sample from enough of them, then you can start to triangulate between all the different recommendations are out there and get an idea of the common threads. And it does seem to be the case that when it comes to longevity, you have, I guess, the baseline, which is what you'd see in an actuarial table. And then you have shifts upwards or downwards from there based on how sedentary or active you are. We've also started to look into data around resting heart rates and sort of what happens during sleep and what happens at rest. and whether or not including that information is useful for people, I tend to say it probably is. So if you can then start to give recommendations around trying to pay off some sleep debt and get make sure you have enough time spent sleeping and potentially quality, if the data is available to give recommendations on that, then we think that's going to be useful as well. There's a few challenges Again, coming back to the idea that if we want tech to be in this loop, that you don't want tech to be driving behavioural change in an unintentional way. So trying to measure as many things as possible and trying to get someone to optimise them all, all at once, is probably going to be overwhelming for most people. And even if it's not overwhelming, I think I've certainly experienced this with my own data. You... (laughs) you can spend a lot of time and energy trying to work out what it is you need to be doing next. And I think where a platform like ours can be really useful is you can just focus all of that down into the thing that we know is most high leverage and then borrow information from what other people have been able to do and say, well, this is actually what you need to be working on next. So just give one recommendation rather than a whole list of recommendations. 
Yeah, exactly. So you give one recommendation and instead of trying to give 10 metrics that we think are really useful and tell you, not even tell you that they need to be optimized, just imply that they need to be as high as they can because they're all scores out of zero to 100 or they're all plotted on graphs that go from sort of low to high and give you a comparison week to week. So trying to say like, hey, we actually know that the most high leverage thing you need to do at the moment is sleep more because we can stay you sleeping four hours a night and we know that you need to be around eight or nine or for most people anyway it sounds like a lot of the data science that you're doing here would be based predominantly on statistics is that right it's a little bit circular because my approach to data science has always been based very heavily in statistical modeling that's where i did my phd and my undergrad studies so my approach has always been fairly kind of heavily grounded in the field one thing I've had to learn over time is to get really good at engineering practices. I'm still not good at them. To get better, I should say. To get better at a lot of engineering practices because you study a PhD, you can get away with a lot of crappy spaghetti code that does what you need it to do, but if you change one thing, it'll break. I'm if, embarrassed about the code that I wrote for my PhD. Yeah, it's crazy when you think about like how little rigor goes into <laughs> writing academic code, I think. I and use no kind of version control. I used to kind of number like scripts from one up to whatever I needed to and run them all in sequence. Rely a lot on like local files, local environment variables. Nothing was ever a function. Yeah, you do a lot of bad things. Then when you have to try and write code that sits in a production environment and has to talk to other systems, you you very quickly kind of work out what you need to do on that front. What What does your tech stack look like? One of the really like fascinating bits that I've worked on is trying to get like a lot of the data processing done in a really short amount of time. In other places I've worked, a lot of the tools you rely on have been kind of batch tools that run a whole set of data to process a whole set of data all at once. And those tools can be really useful, even if you want to do really short, really low latency batch processing. So you want to run something every five minutes. But what we've been trying to do is have something that runs almost as soon as someone syncs or uploads data from a particular device. And we want, particularly for like activity scores or activity processing, we want to actually have that in the moment. So as soon as you sync your device, you'll get that feedback and that information and then try and sort of propagate all that information through the different kind of metrics and recommendations that we're trying to give. Based primarily on a lot of SQS queues that are, a lot of Amazon SQS that are tied together. Is that an AWS special? An AWS service that'll just, it'll add messages to a message bus and then. Sort of like Kafka type thing. Yeah, very similar. Like I mentioned with my background, I had to learn what all of this is, what it all means yeah. as I've gone along. Because I found writing the actual code to do data processing fairly straightforward, but trying to get it to talk to an SQS and then pass information back to a database or to another SQS is a little bit more challenging, but that's all part of the fun. So yeah, we rely on that because that allows us to do a lot of processing in as close to real time as possible. And then most of the processing at the moment is done with pandas. And then sort of slowly introducing a lot of things that can be done just with really basic SQL, because I think that's going to be quite scalable over time. And really easy to read. I don't know how prevalent this is, but I have seen it for some people. There's a default temptation to reach for the the tool or the package that will answer all your problems all the time. So using pandas for data processing or using Spark because it'll scale to millions of rows all at once. But I've actually found that writing quite a lot of things in SQL makes it really, really easy to work out what it is you were trying to do. And really easy to onboard new people if they need to be working on it and really easy to like debug, handle errors, add filters, you know, all the things that it was built for. So yeah, quite a few things I'm starting to introduce just with really basic SQL, except for perhaps some of the more complicated processing that I've used for a bit of pandas. That's really interesting because I've actually spoken to several, and quite a few people who say that they use a lot of SQL for their data science. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's almost a foundational skill in data science is writing SQL, but writing SQL almost in your sleep 
being able to come up with a query that will answer something is almost more valuable than trying to come up with like the really cool bit of code or the nice model that will answer something. It's valuable because you can just stack it on top of other bits of queries and see the lineage and see what's kind of happening through different bits of the code. So I'd imagine most people are across this, but if you're not, like that's probably one recommendation I'd give is just get really comfortable kind of answering as much as you can in SQL. And so you don't use any statistical packages on top of that? Most of the stats is done offline. I sort of came up with a few models or a few kind of calculations. I'll give one example. Like we use someone's maximum heart rate to indicate if the activity they've been doing is moderate or intense. And what you'll have is you'll have like a time series of people's heart rate data. And you'll also have their age and gender. And so what we can do is we could look at just your heart rate data over time and take the maximum of that, and that could be your max heart rate. But there's obviously these sampling bias issues where if, for example, you are someone that only ever wears a Garmin watch when you're going for an easy run and you don't often do some high-intense activity, we're not going to actually see your true max heart rate. On the other side, there are all these population measures of what your max heart rate should be, I think, but just based on age. The really common one is 220 minus your age is roughly what your maximum heart rate should be. There are updated versions of that which we use, which don't round off to 220 and use slightly different coefficients. I can't, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is off the top of my head, but it's, it's similar in that vein. And so... On one hand, we could see what your max heart rate is just based on what we get from your device. On the other side, we get what we think it is from the population. What I then did is worked on a model that just tried to combine the weight of those, like try to combine those two estimates, if you think of them as estimates, and weighted them by how often someone was using their device. So if you said someone who used their device literally 24-7, we don't need a, an approximation of what their max heart rate is. We can just read it straight off what the device is telling us. And on the other side, if you have someone that wears their device for one or two hours every week, we're not going to apply a lot of weight to the max we see from their device. We're just going to look at what the population thinks. So this is sort of a credibility theory approach. Have you ever come across that before? I don't know the terminology. I've come across like a weighted regression or yeah, I think in like survey sampling, you'd probably do something similar where you kind of weight different surveys by either how, I guess, how credible they are or how much data you have. I have an insurance background mm. and credibility theory was originally developed for workers' compensation. And the idea is that it's basically a weighted average of industry experience and individual experience in order to calculate a workers' compensation premium for a company. So it sounds like you're doing a similar thing, whereas, but instead of combining the individual experience of an organisation, you've got the individual experience of a person. And instead of industry experience, you've got general population experience. Yeah, I think the methods are many, but the concepts are few, right? Like, mm. I, think you, I think you end up seeing the same thing across many different domains, which is kind of the nice bit about working in the field. It does sound like, it does sound pretty close to what we're trying to achieve. We're just trying to weight different sources of data by how often we're seeing it. And then, yeah, again, how useful we actually think it is. Yeah, as a data scientist, I hate merging data that's been collected from multiple sources because it never quite meshes properly. Is that problematic for you, given the fact that you'd be using data that was collected from multiple devices? Yeah, it's really problematic. And it's like, it's the most significant challenge we're trying to address at the moment. You'll have some devices that have like a really rich data set. So if you go for a run, it'll tell you the latitude and longitude of where it was. So we can give you kind of GPS data. It will tell you the pace that you're running at any given point in time. It'll tell you elevation changes. And so we can give you a lot of feedback about that particular activity. So we might be able to say if you did a really hilly run, we might be able to adjust back the pace for the given gradient to a certain performance level because we know that, you know, at a certain elevation change, a six-minute kilometre is actually similar to a four-minute kilometre in the flat. So there's a lot of things we can do there. 
But then for other devices, you don't get much information at all. You might just get an activity name and then the amount of time and that's it. I think the corner we kind of got painted into was trying to treat it all as the same and then have edge case handling if things were missing. And the approach that I'm more open to now is actually handling different devices differently based on the data you have available and then trying to make the UX and UI really individualized based on what data is available as well. Again, in that example, like you go for a run with a Garmin and you've got a heart rate monitor, what you might see in the front end of the app might show how far you went, how quick you went, how quick you would have gone for the same run in that same, in like flat conditions, how much time you spent resting versus moving. And then we might be able to categorize if it was an interval versus a time trial or a straight run. We can give you some feedback on your heart rate zones and where you sat. And then, for example, you do it with a different device and it just tells us, let's say, distance and time. Instead of showing an empty screen with a bunch of empty data or pretending that we have more data than we do and trying to like bulk it out with what's available, where we're heading is we just want to have a view which just says you went for a run and you added 60 minutes to your activity minutes goal and you're that much closer to the goal you were trying to achieve. So something behind the scenes that selects a particular visualization to show people based on what a data is available? Yes, it's having like the data product really tightly integrated with the rest of the product so that based on what data we have available, we can actually decide what goes into the front end and how that's visualized and kind of customize to some extent the appearance of it. So you have yeah, all these different options in the UX to say this activity just contributed to the activity goal and then maybe this activity we're going to show these fields of information and then we're sort of starting to explore like different customizations that you could do for different activities so for example you go on a run with a lot of different hills we might want to show you how much elevation change there was and how we think that run kind of compared to what you would have done in the flat Whereas if you go on a run and it's fairly flat, let's say it's near the beach um, and there's no elevation, there's no much point in us showing you how much elevation you had, but maybe you'd be more interested in your overall pace or your heart rate or something like that. So one of the nice bits about being the data scientist very early on in the piece is that you can kind of work on adding all of the data products into like have it really tightly coupled with what's in the back end and what's in the front end and almost have it as part of the product rather than this nice add-on that comes later way down the line. How early into the game did you join the startup? It was more or less from conception. I knew the co-founders through Manly Surf Club. They approached me as they were sort of formulating the idea and looking for some really early investment. And I helped out in bits and pieces, say in an ad hoc manner in just in trying to test out the idea and trying to see if if we could get a little bit of data to actually formulate what they were thinking about. And then, yeah, over time, as they've gathered a bit of investment, just a little bit of advising on how to set up the team and, yeah, how to, how to kind of lay out the back end and the front end of the thing. And then at certain times, I've had to come in and actually write some code to, to do a lot of the activity processing. And as it's all evolved, I'm sort of spending a little bit more time on kind of guiding the product and saying seeing where it can where the product and how it gets displayed can actually fit with the data we have available and I think we're now at a point where it's a little bit more mature because we have an idea of what it looks like as an MVP mm-hmm. and we can now see where all this personalization and intelligent recommendation can actually feed into the way in which the product is presented to change the topic a bit In addition to your work in the startup space, you've also completed a PhD in statistical and mathematical modelling. Now, one of the things you mentioned to me when we first spoke was that a lot of your PhD work involved the use of Bayesian methods and that you saw these methods as raising the level of rigour of statistics. Given my own statistical background, I'm very interested in learning more about your thoughts on this matter. But before we go down this path, 
could you prov- provide our listeners with an overview of what's involved in Bayesian methods in case they've never come across them before? There's a number of different approaches we could make into this topic. But what I might do is I might give an overview of how I kind of came into Bayesian methods. I think I think most people have a really broad level understanding of what Bayes' theorem is. And then what often gets presented is like, this is what Bayes' theorem is. This is how it falls out from the laws of conditional probability. And, and this is how you might actually use it. But that doesn't quite match up to what it gets used in practice. But the way I which I came across it and was taught was through the use of hierarchical regression modeling or what some people call multi-level regression models so these are regression models where you have data collected in clusters or groups where a particular parameter might be may or may not be influenced by the presence of a group so the canonical example that gets used is you want to look at the impact of whether a student had breakfast before they did an exam on their exam scores that's not quite canonical but you get the idea we want to have we want to have some idea of if this if something a student did was influential on their exam scores or achievement levels at school but what we want to do is then account for the variability you'd get within classes because different teachers obviously have different impacts on students and then the variability that you'd get within schools as well. And so what you would do, if you imagine a typical regression model, it might be an intercept term plus a coefficient of the variable that you want to that you want to make some sort of inference about. So in this example, it might be the average, the intercept would be the average exam score, and then the coefficient would be, well, did that student have breakfast that morning? And in a multi-level model, what you'd do is you'd have an intercept for every class. So you let's say there's 100 classes within your data set, and let's say there's roughly 10 students in every class, although that can it doesn't have to be exact, it can vary. What you'd do is then you'd add on the average performance level within each class before you then decide to try and decide the value of the coefficient that you're interested in. Okay, so it's a staged approach. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's how I think about it. Now, what you actually do is obviously you estimate all of this at once, which is going to, which is sort of what leads me into Bayesian approaches. What you'll often have with this sort of clustered data is you'll have a lot of groups with a lot of, with not a lot of information. So you might only have one or two students in a lot of classes, just because of the way in which you've sampled data, and then you might have some classes with a lot of students where it is easy to make that kind of inference. So what you will end up doing is you'll say, well, the distribution of all of these class level intercepts is governed by some kind of normal distribution. Where I found it really valuable was then it allows you to fit a much larger class of models for a certain set of data. And the bit I found really interesting is you can actually start to fit start to think about models in a generative way. And if you have an idea of what the generative process is for a certain set of data, you could think about writing that down. And then if you put prior distributions over all the parameters in whatever that data generating process is, you would be able to fit it to a certain set of data. And so it's a lot more powerful and flexible because you can, for example, use nonlinear functional forms if you know that there are certain physical constraints on something you observe. So if, it, if a certain set of data is sort of bounded below at zero and bounded above at another threshold, that can, be, that can be information that you incorporate into your model. You can also have these monotonicity constraints. So you can say, well, I'm certain that this function starts at a value and ends at a value and it's monotonic in between that and I don't know exactly what values it goes between but this is my rough guess this is my approximation which I apply through prior distribution and yeah it it opens you up to a much larger class of modeling and allows you to be a little bit more prescriptive in what model you write and I think it does ultimately allow you to be a little bit more nuanced in your inference 
And how have you managed to make use of these techniques, either in your PhD work or in your work as a data scientist? A PhD was an, there's an interesting one. Um, my, my personal favourite chapter in that, we were looking at the impacts of a sort of an IVF treatment and some other characteristics of pregnancy on birth weight. Essentially, birth weight is highly governed by the gestational age of the pregnancy. So pregnancies that go to, let's say, 20 or 30 weeks, obviously tend to have premature babies that are quite small. And then babies that go to full term um, are more likely to be around, well, you're more likely to see a um, higher birth weight baby. And there was this idea out in the literature that actually IVF or assisted reproductive technologies, because they're more than IVF, was actually impactful on birth weight. It would tend to reduce the average birth weight by a certain amount. And so what you want to do when you're doing this kind of analysis, we had a, a bunch of data that we kind of wanted to use to investigate that. What we wanted to do was say, well, let's once you adjust for gestational age, do you see the same thing? And so the typical way you do this, if you were regression modeling, is you would add in a term for gestational age and then you'd add in a term for usage of ART in the pregnancy or not. And then you might add another bunch of terms for other characteristics of the mother that you're interested in. But where we were able to kind of apply this kind of thinking, I suppose you should go back a step. If you're going to do that sort of model, you obviously want gestational age to be a nonlinear term because the impact of an extra week of gestation is not the same going from let's say 29 to 30, as it is going from 39 to 40 weeks of pregnancy. And there are all sorts of techniques you can use to get like a nonlinear term, like you use splines or Gaussian processes or polynomial terms, or there's a bunch of different options. But where where, where I was able to apply like a Bayesian approach with a kind of nonlinear parameterized model was we actually had like an explicit model of gestational age and birth weight. And that was parameterized, I think, with a logistic curve with four parameters. So a logistic curve is like an S-shaped curve. It starts at a lower asymptote. It ends at a higher asymptote and looks like an S in between. And the four parameters roughly govern where the lower asymptote is, where the upper asymptote is, where the midpoint of that S-shape is, and then how steep the S-shape is in between that. And then what you can do as you fit this model is you can have a, a regression on each parameter of that logistic curve. So instead of having an overall ART effect, you could say, well, this is the effect of assisted pregnancies on pregnancies that go to full term because that applies to the upper asymptote of the S-curve. And this is the effect of assisted technologies on pregnancies in determining like how quickly birth weights will increase between kind of early term and then full term pregnancies. And so what it actually does is it actually gives you a lot more information to conduct your inference on. So instead of looking at one parameter and then looking at the significance of that parameter, I won't go down that rabbit hole of like significance <laughs> and p-values, but instead of looking at one parameter and then conducting all of your scientific inference on that one parameter, you have a class of a set of parameters that you then can kind of investigate for marginal differences and decide on the whole if there is something you can observe. That's actually really interesting. It's something that I'd like to give a go at in my own work. And I can imagine a lot of other listeners would want to give it a try. For anyone who is interested in applying these sorts of techniques in their work, where would you recommend they begin? Uh, Statistical Rethinking is a really good textbook to start. I think Richard McElroy, I don't know if I pronounced his name right, but Statistical Rethinking in your favourite search engine will get you to the right place. He's written that textbook as an introduction to statistics, but it's through a Bayesian workflow. So instead of teaching what a t-test is and then teaching what an OLS regression is, he'll just Mm -hmm. teach you the basics through Bayesian methods. And so I think it's a really good place. He'll teach you, it, the textbook kind of shows you where like where MCMC comes from and how certain choices of prior distributions kind of impact the end result of a posterior under certain conditions. And then also 
the different classes of models that often get used. So there's a kind of lengthy introduction to the hierarchical models, similar to the one I gave at the top, but kind of a lot more professionally done. And then it kind of introduction to the idea of Gaussian processes, which are really a really valuable tool. And then a sort of introduction to nonlinear models, non well, non what I call nonlinear fully parameterized models, which is sort of the example that I just gave before. So I think I'd start there. I think if online learning is more your flavor rather than textbooks, I use the Stan language, which is a Bayesian modeling statistical language where you can write models that then can be called by either R or Python. So it's it can be used by either option for the same given model. What you'll do is you'll write a given model in Stan and then you'll pass data across either from R or Python, compile the model and estimate it, and then gather the posterior samples back in whatever language you're using before to analyze. So do you call it from Python or R in order yeah. to get the model true? Yeah, exactly. So you'll call the model and you'll pass it a set of data and you'll specify in the model what data you're expecting. And so Stan will take that set of data, take the model you've written, apply its version of MCMC to a sample posterior, or generate a bunch of posterior samples from the model. And then it will pass that back. If you're working in R, it'll pass that back to R. And you'll have like a data frame of posterior samples that you can work with. And you can almost analyze it as you would any other data set. That's interesting. And is there some sort of Python or R library that connects the two languages like PyStan or something? Yeah, exactly. So PyStan and RStan will have connections to a sort of stable version. And then there's packages called CommandStanPy and CommandStandR. And that will actually speak to like the most recent release of the Stan language if you want to kind of use more up-to-date features. And if you start to look into the language resources, there's documentation on sort of basic model building and basic usage of the language. And if your preference is to kind of learn the theory of things as you go, which is certainly mine at the moment, then that's actually a really nice way to start because there's enough information there that you can pick up on the fundamental ideas of Bayesian models at the same time as learning how to write it in the language. And there are wrappers, well, there's definitely a wrapper in R called BRMS, and that will allow you to write Bayesian models, but as a regression model, if you're more familiar with that syntax. So just using standard uh, regression model syntax? Yeah, exactly. And it's quite like highly flexible because it's it, it can import a few different functions from other packages that allow you to use other splines or Gaussian processes if you want to do some sort of non-linear modeling and i've used it before if you have an idea about like a functional form that you want to write out yourself so i don't know the exact terminology i call it like a non-linear fully parameterized model so something like a logistic curve that you you want to do a regression of a certain y variable and you want to do it on this logistic curve of your x variable you can just write that out in normal regression syntax and it will do all the estimation for you and there's a nice set of functions that kind of wrap around the output you get from the model that will allow you to conduct a lot of your inference pretty easily and quickly. I think there's an equivalent in Python, but I'm not 100% sure of the name. I want to go off and have a go at this after this episode's finished. I highly recommend it. Like it, it will, yeah, I think it's, I think it forces you to be a little bit more um, considered and precise in how you do your modeling. And it, it, like I said, it opens you up to a lot more kind of, it's a lot more generative modeling, which I think, um, I know it's your background. Like, I think if you studied regression models and statistics for an, enough time, you start to see where like typical regression models are a little bit of a procrustean bed of you try and fit a data and a question into an answer of, or oh, does my regression model give me a significant coefficient and if so then my theory is correct so mm. this does kind of open you up a little bit to be a little bit more considered and perhaps creative in how you do your modeling which i really like is there anything on your radar in the ai data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years building systems that can use data to give really like intelligent feedback and have that like have that really tightly coupled to a product is going to be a 
real key feature of a lot of AI data space. And I think being able to do that en masse across a lot of different businesses will be valuable. Obviously, the the leaders like Google and Facebook and a few others have been able to do this pretty well. But for teams that don't have a large analytic stack, it's been a little bit more difficult. I think the challenges most data scientists have faced is they come across a business, there's a number of business requirements that they need to address. So even though they're highly capable and technically gifted, you end up answering finances questions on how much revenue we had last month. And then you want to answer marketing's questions of how many people did we sign up? And you you have to crawl before you walk, before you run. But what I forecast happening is that, that will become easier and easier to solve because of the amount of tools available. And it'll, it kind of opens up room for the next stage of technical sophistication. And I think what that looks like is being able to come up with not necessarily predictions from machine learning, but being able to come up with different sources of insights that can actually be utilized by a product in almost an optional manner. So, you know, we spoke about quite a few examples that we're starting to look at with UR, but there are other cases you can think of for like operational type requirements. I know churn modeling has been like a really staple example of a lot of data science teams but this is not not necessarily talking about prediction of who's likely to churn but also giving a recommendation of where that should go so if someone's likely to churn you might want to place that person into whatever messaging service your customer service teams and actually building out that system end to end or you might want to have some notification go out into the app or some or you might want to actually kind of modify what the ux the UI of the app that you're working on, like how that actually gets displayed based on some prediction you generate. So it's almost about building an end-to-end system that uses the data you have available can make the prediction, which I think I think most people kind of have their heads around, but then building building a system around that to actually do something with it. Because I think most of the data we have available is valuable only in as much as you can make decisions off the back of it. Mm. And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? I think being curious about what you're working on and trying to bring some level of passion to what you're doing. Almost as a data scientist, a service for other people's issues and taking on that service role is something like you can solve a lot of people's problems with the tools and insights you have available kind of sets you up in a really nice place i'm just i mean as i'm speaking i'm reflecting on this like i have a few successes and quite a few failures at doing this so i think the successes have been where being able to work with someone and find where that particular pain point or issue or potentially an unknown unknown in that they don't they're unaware of what isn't working for them but you are aware of it and being able to bring that to someone is really valuable and i think as as i've also going on it's not just about bringing in a set of insights and it's also not about bringing in a set of predictions it's about working on like what you can actually build and thinking about it almost i mean from a tech perspective almost thinking about it as a product manager to say well if i were in charge of the product this is what you could actually build and bringing that to someone, I think the, the the successes that I've had in my career have always come from being able to work really closely with a product manager or a product owner and being able to be very prescriptive in what can actually be built. So instead of just giving them a base level of insight or a base level of recommendations, give them the option of a few different things you can build. And I think if you reverse engineered doing that for someone, I think you'd want to be fairly passionate and fairly interested in the product and being able to solve those problems for the business you're working in and for the people who are using it. So it's a product-driven approach to problem solving. It's a, a smart bias, to be fair. Like I think I'm sure you get different answers from different people, but my perspective is that um, 
you have almost like a a change management optional approach to product development like you can look at a problem in a product or in an operational part of a business and make some really foundational changes with how that's done for listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact what can they do linkedin is probably the best way um not too big on the socials or blog writing even though i've thought about doing it plenty of times but yeah linkedin um if you search my name it'll come up yeah otherwise i'm happy to share an email okay and I'll put a link to the UR homepage in the show notes for this episode. Cool. Okay, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure. And thanks for having me. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.